So we're going to get going this morning. The message today is called Out of Your Nose. Out of Your Nose. So it is uh, June 22nd, 2014. Y'all say that with me. Out of Your Nose. Oh, some of you dignified ones, I didn't get you. Say, out of your nose. Now, that is almost never a good thing, is it? (laughs) I mean, I remember Matthew stayed with me one night. I told him not to eat the Taco Bell. I told him not to do it. And he threw up until green onions came out of his nose. It was so revolting and so upsetting to him that it was a good 72 hours before he ate Taco Bell again. (laughs) Out of your nose. This is a biblical phrase that we'll get to in a little while. I'd like to tell you what's coming out of our nation's nose, though. You can get so full, full all the way up to your chin of something that it feels as if it's going to come out of your nose. Here are a couple news articles that while I was in the emergency room flashed across the screen. I needed something else to think about. Your pinky's a little bitty thing, but if you knock it off your body, your whole body takes notice of it. Obama expands government benefits for gay couples. Obama administration granted an array of new benefits Friday to same-sex couples including those who live in states where gay marriage is against the law. The new measures range from Social Security and veterans benefits to work leave for caring for sick partners. They are part of President Barack Obama's efforts to expand whatever protections he can offer to gay and lesbians, even though more than half of the states don't recognize gay marriage. That effort has been confounded by laws that some say Benefits should be conferred only to couples whose marriages are recognized by the states where they live, rather than the states where they were married. Aiming to circumvent that issue, the Veterans Affairs Department, and boy, don't they have their stuff in order lately, will start letting gay people who tell the government they are married to be buried alongside their partners in the National Cemetery. They will also be being paid survivor's benefits from the Social Security Administration. Now, it's not my intention to be political here. It's my intention to talk to you about the state of our nation for a minute. By the way, some of you have a really shocked look on your face. Did you ever think we would get to this day in the United States? How about this one? President Barack Obama advances transgender rights. Here's a little excerpt. With little fanfare or criticism... That's interesting. That marked his evolution into the leader that the Newsweek magazine nicknamed the first gay president. Obama became the first chief executive to say transgender in a speech. To name transgender political appointees and to prohibit job bias against transgender government workers. Also in his first term, he signed hate crime legislation that became the first civil rights protections for transgender people in the United States history. Since then, the administration has quietly applied the power of the executive branch to make it easier for transgender people to update passports. That's interesting. Obtain health insurance under the Affordable Care Act and get treatment at the Veterans Administration's facilities. 
as well as seek access to public school restrooms and sports programs. These are the headlines that were going across the news while I was visiting a hospital. Nine things you should know about executive orders and the gay and lesbian agenda. This just goes on to talk about how it's in the works that if you are a church and you decide not to hire Bill because he was born Mary, very soon it looks as if you will be sued for such a thing. Is that sad? How about this one? With all respect to my Presbyterian friends, Presbyterians vote to divest holdings to pressure Israel. The Presbyterian Church in the USA is one of a handful of historic mainline Protestant denominations and the only church of many, I'm sorry, and the church of many American presidents is the largest yet to to endorse divestment at a church-wide convention and follows a decade of debate. What is divestment? There are three companies that the Presbyterian Church has invested their retirements in, invested their excess money in. These companies are Caterpillar, Hewlett-Packard, and Motorola Solutions. It amounts to $21 million. And since those companies also provide things that aid Israel, they've decided they will not invest in any company that aids Israel in any way because they don't want to be seen as supporting Israel over the Palestinian Authority. Now... That's New York Times, this is the Houston Chronicle, this is Newsday, and that's ABC News. Can you say it's dark outside? When not just the American government, but American churches are proud to pull any resources, no matter how indirect, away from Israel, is that a sad day? When the chief goal of our social agenda in the United States seems to be to elevate deviance and perversion to an acceptable level and to punish anyone who would call it deviance or perversion. Is that a sad day? I want to warn you before we get much further in this message, it's going to hurt some, and I think there's light at the end of the tunnel. Could you turn with me to Proverbs 18.13? I want to get a disclaimer out of the way before I offend all of you. In Proverbs 18 and 13, he who answers before listening, that is his folly and his shame. If you already have decided what you think about all the topics we're going to talk about today and therefore have barred yourself against learning, that would really be to your shame. Because I'm going to teach you something today that you're not going to hear in every new believer's class. I'm going to cover a few scriptures that are rarely ever discussed in church because it doesn't fit as neatly into the theological framework as most pastors would like. They like very simple views of God. They like such simple views of God that we can boil it down to the minimalist level, get you to pray a simple prayer, and after that, everything's done and everything's okay. I'm going to ask you to keep an open mind. Turn with me to Jeremiah, and we will begin the controversy. Is that okay? Even if it's not, it's what we're doing. So you might as well talk to me this morning. In Jeremiah, starting in verse, or chapter 26, starting in verse 11. 
Then the priest and the prophets. Who's speaking? The priest and the Then the priest and the prophet said to the officials and all of the people, this man should be sentenced to death because he has prophesied against this city. You have heard it with your own ears. I need you to know that the priest and the prophets of Israel are conspiring to kill Jeremiah. Do you know why? Because he didn't prophesy every day is Friday. Because he didn't prophesy your best life now. He prophesied that judgment was coming upon their nation because they had been ungodly. Anytime we have a national evangelical leader that stands up and says a specific instance of anything is God's judgment, everybody calls him a loon and a wacko. Everybody gets upset about it. We're uncomfortable with the idea that our nation could come under judgment. And we're uncomfortable with that idea because on our dollar it says, God bless America. Because part of patriotism is the feeling that Americans are pretty good people. When were we pretty good people? When we had slaves? When were we pretty good people? When the life expectancy in Jamestown was 35 years old because of the tobacco and alcohol trade? When were we pretty good people? Now, I believe politically in American exceptionalism, except now it's an idea. It's something that did exist. The truth is there's not a lot exceptional about us now except our sin. And we've exported it to every country that I've been to. I love this nation, but I love my king more. And I want to warn you, when these are the headlines, you do not have to be a prophet to know judgment is coming. But you don't build a big church like that. See, if I tell you that I'm only going to talk about positive things this morning, and dear God will never use the word sin or address sin, then maybe if we give enough donuts and make you feel good about yourself enough, we can build as big a church as we want, if indeed you can call that a church. You might even pay $500, $700, $800 to come hear me speak at Madison Garden, because that's the thing pastors do now. Lamentations 2.14 is maybe the scariest verse that I can think of. And I want you to see it now. The visions of your prophets were false and worthless. They did not expose your sin to ward off your captivity. The oracles they gave you were false and misleading. The goal of the prophetic world... The goal of the preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to ward off captivity. Personally, nationally, globally. The goal of preaching is to liberate. The whole hope is that people will walk out of their sin in the power of a resurrected life. When our preaching simply becomes to talk to you and make you feel better about yourself. When our preaching simply becomes a sly way to sell books... Or CDs, it does not ward off captivity. You know, they were considering killing Jeremiah in the 26th chapter. Is that shocking? Is that abhorrent to you? You know what would be more abhorrent? Is if Jeremiah preached a message they didn't want to kill him for. Because that would mean that he was willing to take their money, live off of their tithes, to call himself a man of God but not warn them. I think it's more disturbing 
if they don't want to hurt you for what you preach. By the way, in the 26th chapter, which we're not going to read, a man named Uriah, the son of Shimei, preached the exact same thing Jeremiah did, and yet you've probably never heard of him. That's because they killed him. And Jeremiah still didn't back off. If you read that chapter, he said, you do to me what you think's best. But if you kill me, no, you'll be even more guilty because my blood is innocent. I want to tell you, we live in a time where people are having their, their ears tickled by preachers. Their itching ears are raising up for themselves men that even the lost know are biblically illiterate and not motivated by the presence of God. Our king is holy and he requires holiness. The mere idea that it is tolerance to accept evil in the place of good is devilish in and of itself. Could you turn with me to Psalm 37? Say there when you were there. This was on our groom's cake, Jennifer. Psalm 37 and starting around verse 4. Two of you are there. Are the rest of you getting there? You know, we're told as pastors now never to cover more than two or three scriptures in a message. Don't ask people to bring their Bibles to church. Get your service as fast as you can so you can move them in and out like cattle. Probably two, three worship songs at most. A 28-minute message. Because what we're after really is your tithe. Is that sick? That is so sick that I'm not scared to name names. I'm really not. It's so sick that I think they're prostituting the body of Christ. I think they have sold the body of Christ to do wickedness while they line their pockets and preach prosperity. In the name of Jesus, in this ministry and in your lives, we want to hold up Jesus as supreme, his character as supreme. In Psalm 37, starting in verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. That word delight is anog in Hebrew. It means happy, soft, pliable. When you're happy for the ways of the Lord, when you're soft in the ways of the Lord, meaning that he can mold you, when you're pliable in the presence of the Lord, then he will shape your heart to love his desires. In fact, the desires of your heart he begins to give you. Not so very long ago, a couple decades plus a year or two, I was painting. And while I was painting all alone in the classroom, I was meditating on this verse. And I said, Lord, I don't even know what the desires of my heart are. I wouldn't know what what to pray for. And I had recently been baptized in the Holy Ghost and I was praying in the Holy Ghost. And the Lord spoke to me just like one of you might speak to me and said, Jennifer is the desire of your heart. Yeah, it was a good word. Amen. Whoever said that. Five children, 21 years later, it's been a good word. The desires of our hearts are shaped by God. Now, all of us are very comfortable with that when we say that it is a good thing, correct? When the desire of your heart is a good thing, shaped by God, we're excited. We're going to find there's another side to that coin today. And it's one that I don't know if I've ever heard a message on, but it's time. Turn with me to Proverbs 11 and tell me when you get there. 
Proverbs 11 and verse 6. Let's read that together. The righteousness of the upright delivers them, but the unfaithful are trapped by... The righteousness of the upright delivers them, but the unfaithful are trapped by... When you allow your heart to be molded by evil things, when evil becomes your desire, the Lord will use your very own desires to trap you in the judgment of God. See, a righteous man's heart is shaped by the righteous things that God is pouring into his heart. But a wicked man who delights in wickedness can even get to the place where the Lord uses the man's own desires to judge him. A great example of this can be found in Romans, the first chapter. Say there when you were there. New people in our church, the first thing that you will notice is we never have a message that is based on one or two scriptures. If you cannot find the truth that we're teaching in every book of the Bible, then it's not worth teaching. In the first chapter of Romans, start with me in verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. What does wickedness try to do? It suppresses the truth because it hates it. Have you ever noticed that the voice of tolerance is the most intolerant voice on the planet? Every view is okay to be held. Men that want to make love to dolphins is just fine. But you find a man who believes that one woman, monogamy, under the sight of God forever is the only way, and all of a sudden he's a hate monger. These are strange times, but it's always been this way. Look at verse 19. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. Men are without what? I hear excuses all day long. Every What about a desert island? What about this? What about that? Of course, if you ever meet the guy on the desert island that never heard about God, you have a responsibility to tell him. So this is a hypothetical situation that literally can never occur. Men are without excuse. When we wake up and we take a breath, that was a gift of God. When we walk outside and the sun is still hanging in its place in the sky, that is a gift of God. When we eat and our bellies are full, that is a gift of God. Men are without excuse. Watch verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. You can darken the heart that God gave you. Even if you know Him, you can darken the heart that He gave you. Talk to me about internet pornography for a minute and tell me that anybody has ever been better off. I say it's victimless. One of the young men was circulating an article that is a medical journal. They've actually proven that it shrinks two areas of the human brain. Isn't that great? I knew that before they proved it. Every time I look at somebody that's got that dull, dead look in their eyes, 
And they're guilty as soon as we talk about a computer. You can see shame come over them. We can be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And the longer you're hardened by sin's deceitfulness, the less piercing it is when you hear these headlines. If you read these headlines, some of you were here in 1945, 1950. If you read these headlines, then we would have a national revolt. There is absolutely no chance that the World War II generation would have tolerated this. But to us, it's just part of life, right? Our hearts are being darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. When governments endorse sexual habits that will call for the extinction of our species, is that not foolish? You would think just based on their hunger for taxes, we would need a certain population. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. This is the important part. Therefore, God gave them over. Who gave them over? Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. I want to tell you that when you desire righteousness, Matthew 5 says that you will be filled with righteousness. But if what you desire is wickedness, God will give you over to your desire. This is true on an individual level, and it's true on a national level. The king of glory told Israel they did not need a king. Do not ask for a king. You, I am your king, he said. But when the people wanted a king, he gave them a king. After warning them what the king would do, they still wanted him, and his name was Saul. And he's a type of the Antichrist. And I'm telling you that God will give this world exactly what they are asking for. If what they want is total depravity, then that is exactly what they'll get. The wicked will become more wicked and the righteous will become more righteous so that there is a distinction between the two. Turn with me to Numbers 11. Let us talk about our appetites for a minute. Say there when you're there. I'm not liking this flipping with one hand thing. So the triage nurse was checking me in the ER. And I guess it's graphic, but at least you're not seeing pictures. My pinky was hanging off of the rest of my... Pinky, the tip of it was broken off. And uh, the bone was there. And uh, so I'm praying in the Holy Ghost and every once in a while singing a few old hymns. I don't know why the old hymns come back to me in those moments, but they do. And the triage nurse that's checking me in says, I can't believe you're not cussing and stomping. I said, what a man puts in his heart is what comes out of his heart, Brian. I'm in love with the Lord. How about you? Brian didn't want to talk to me anymore after that. (laughs) Brian found someone else to care for me. But we found two Christians on the staff, and the one that put my hand back together, she goes to Guatemala and Peru on medical missions because she loves the Lord. 
The Lord's trained even my fingers for battle. In Numbers 11, starting in verse 4, the rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat, we remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. At no cost, right? At no cost. I mean, we had a government welfare card for it. We just walked over and scanned it. It didn't cost us anything. Except you're now the slave of the government that provided it for you. Tell me I'm wrong. Were, were the Egyptians the enslavers of the Israelites? And yet now Israelites are saying that it's no cost that they ate fish in Egypt. When God alleviates a burden and when he rescues, how quickly we forget what that burden was. You ever been around Christians that they're like, oh man, that guy's lucky I'm saved because back in the day, you know what I'd have done, Charlie? Do you know what I'd have done? Sounds very much like you want to do it now. Are you sure you're saved? We act like there was no cost for that life. It was the cost of our very soul. It was the cost of the lives of the people around us. All you got to do is study my family bush. I can't say tree in my family. It might even be a family vine. And you can see what a man's sin cost him. Four generations ago, a man's riding his horse from one church to another. He's singing and is happy, and the pastor thought he was drunk because he didn't know any Christians that were happy. He didn't teach them to be. So the sermon that Sunday was all about the drunkenness of four generations ago in the Stevens family. And I wish that that great-great-grandfather had had thicker skin because his feelings got hurt in church. And he left. And the next four generations of my family busted hell wide open. I counted them one time. It's in the hundreds over one man's offense. You never know where your sin stops. You really don't. And you hear me, young people, clicking on things you shouldn't be clicking on? You have no idea what that click costs somebody else. You don't know what it will cost you later in your life. You don't know what it costs that person to provide that cheap thrill for you for that second. It's time for holiness to begin in the house of God. The rabble with them began to crave other food. Crave other food? They were being fed from the heavens by God. And now they are craving other food. When the word of God stopped being enough for the church and we brought in secular programs, we began to crave other food. When church growth gurus took the place of apostles in the church, we began to crave other food. What we're reaping now is the result of craving other food. It was rabble that craved other food, not righteous. The king of kings is all you need. Those of you that are visiting a shrink, I'm not going to throw a stone at you and please don't raise your hand. But if the word of God is not enough, please don't think that some lost man in his pseudoscience is going to deliver you. You will never find anywhere in the scripture where these men referred someone to a psychologist. You'll never find anywhere in the scripture where they said, you know what you really need is some Prozac. 
What you really need is some Xanax. And if the medicine that is supposed to cure your depression, Christian, actually has a side effect that causes suicidal thoughts, then you tell me what you think uh, uh, God would think about it. They began to crave other food. Look at verse 18. Tell the people, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow when you will eat meat. The Lord heard you when you wailed. If only we had meat to eat, we were better off in Egypt. How insulting to the living God. We were better off. This has all the insolent... Anybody in here raised a teenager yet? This has all the insolent marks of about a 14, 15-year-old. When after you've changed their diapers all of those years, after you've loved them, after you've done all those things, you take away the keys to the car. Or in this generation, maybe you banished them from their Xbox for a few minutes. And they say something like, I hate you. It's insane. No rational person could do something like that. But then the sinful heart of a human is irrational, isn't it? Needs to be shaped by God. If only we had meat to eat, we were better off in Egypt. People would choose slavery if they were just fed what they wanted to eat. The stuff that's falling from heaven's not enough. Now the Lord will give you meat and you will eat it. Who will give them the meat? You will not eat it just for one day or two days or five or ten or twenty, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it. Because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wailed before him saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? I want you to understand that God heard what they were asking for. He thought it was wicked. But he decided to give them the very thing they wanted until it came out of there so that they would loathe it. Do you know what happens when the people want wickedness? God will allow them to get enough of it that some in the group will hate it and hate it enough to turn from it. You know, it's a funny thing. You've all been in the high school scene where everybody's talking about on Friday we're going to go get tore up. And, and, And they talk about it like it's great. Talk about the fight that you saw. Nobody ever talks about it from the standpoint of the one who's throwing up or the one who a long time after everybody left had to pick himself up off the ground and crawl home with a beaten and bruised face. Sin is only fun for the one in the moment. Your day is coming. If you love sin, I promise he'll give you enough of it that you will learn to hate it. One real mark of a Christian is that he hates sin. We no longer love the things of the world. We love the living God who set us free from the things of the world. Who gave them this meat? The Lord did. You know why? Because they craved it. They hungered for it. They wailed and whined about what God had been giving them. Look at verse 33. You don't have to be a theologian to understand this. But while the meat was still between their teeth and before it could be consumed, the anger of the Lord burned against the people. And then he struck them with a severe plague. You mean God that gave them the meat they asked for struck them with a plague for eating it? Yes. The king of kings, you can write this in your theology book if you want, will give you whatever it is that you consistently ask for, and he will give it to you in greater abundance than you ever asked for it. 
If we, what you want is righteousness, he won't just set you right with him. He will make you a lamp and a light to everyone around you. If what you want is salvation, he will save you and use you as an instrument to save others. If what you want is religious fig leaves that just cover your wickedness, he'll cover you with so many fig leaves that you yourself can't even see you're not saved. This is America, friends. What do we want? Because it's beginning to come out of our nose. And it's high time that we stood up for the truth. It is literally time to stop being peaceable with our friends and family when they tell us they're pro-choice. Pro-choice to what? Pro-choice to what? We're not talking about Dr. Pepper versus Pepsi, which is no choice at all. (laughs) Pro-choice for what? Pro-choice to murder a child. But we've heard it so long that, oh, it's just, it's just, you know, it's one of many political choices. Oh, I don't get involved in what people do in their bedrooms. They're not doing it in their bedrooms anymore, friend. Now it's our public restrooms. Now in the city of Houston, if my son goes to take a shower at a health club, he's got to look twice before he walks in the shower because that health club can be fined $5,000 per occurrence if a man feels like he was born a woman and goes into the women's shower. Or if a woman feels like she identifies with the male gender more and she goes into the men's shower, $5,000 fine for the health club. Used to be that you would put the deviant in jail. Now we're not even allowed to call it deviance. A pastor that I love very much was preaching in the 80s and he had a vision of himself in jail because of hate speech towards sin. You can see quickly how this is becoming a reality around us. Turn with me to 1 Kings. Say there when you were there. Get to about the 17th chapter. I'm going to take you on a journey through kings that I doubt you've ever heard preached on in church. And if you have, I bet they completely ignored the context. God is always good. I want you to know that. He's the source of truth. God's not like a man that changes his mind. God does not lie. But he's told us in advance that he will give you whatever you love the most. And I'm going to show you that tonight, today. It's why it's so very, very important that the word of God shape our hearts and minds. Unless you think I'm preaching about someone else somewhere else, I wouldn't waste my time. It's not that I'm preaching to change a gay and lesbian agenda. This is not the greatest evil that we face. It's not that I'm preaching to change uh, this... Uh, abortion industry. That is not the greatest evil that we face. They are evil. The greatest evil that we face is the pulpits of the United States have been sold to wickedness in the name of the almighty dollar. The gospel of success has replaced the gospel of righteousness. And if enough people gather to hear the nonsense, then we think it validates the nonsense. All of Israel wanted to kill Jeremiah and they did kill Uriah. But that didn't mean he was wrong. And they figured it out. Many years after Jeremiah was gone, a prophet named Daniel was reading Jeremiah's writings. He said, we're in captivity because of our sin, and Jeremiah told us so. 
And he began to repent for his nation. And God brought them out of captivity. Sin brings captivity. I don't have to be a prophet to know this nation is fundamentally changing and captivity is coming. You cannot distance yourself from Israel, endorse everything that is wrong, and blame it on someone else and say, oh, it's those people's fault. I have never been a political zealot, but I am absolutely a maniac for the living God. And you need to understand those two things do cross. It's not as if God doesn't care what happens outside the walls of the church. They're not even supposed to be walls of the church. You are the church. You're his voice in this world. Are you in 1 Kings? I want to talk to you about a king named Ahab. Ahab is an interesting fellow. Ahab married a, a pagan priestess. Ahab was the king... Of Israel. And he had several contemporaries, but today we're going to talk about his contemporary in the south, Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat is the king of the southern kingdom, Ahab, the king of the northern kingdom, a time when God's people are divided and split. They'd each pick their denomination, you know. Some like to worship at Bethel in the north, even though God had said his name would dwell in David's house in the city of David. And then those in the south, they may worship in the right place, but they didn't always act rightly while they did it. We have a civil war in Israel. The house of God divided. I want to talk to you about the miracles that Ahab saw. We think of Ahab as a terrible human being, and you think rightly. He is a terrible human being. But I want you to see the mercy of God. In 1 Kings 17, starting in verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tish... Don't you love that? God wanted to make sure you knew where the man was from. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tish in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. I want you to know that Elijah spoke to this king and said, It will not rain unless I tell it to rain. That lasted seven years. The book of James also confirms it. Now we've seen droughts before. But even when it doesn't rain, the temperature differential between night and day usually gives you some dew. In some places, particularly Israel, if you leave flat rocks on the ground, the temperature differential from the warm sea air to the uh, dry, arid mountains causes dew and it waters your fields. Neither rain nor dew. This was supernatural in every sense of the word and it came to pass in Ahab's day. And he got a chance to see that. How many miracles have you seen in your life? How many lives have you seen completely turned around and regenerated? How many times have you seen leopards change their spots, so to speak? Things that absolutely defy the law of nature. Do you trust him yet? Ahab didn't. In the 18th chapter and 38th verse, check out this. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, and licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Ahab saw Elijah call on God, and God answer him from the heavens by fire. He heard the people respond and saw that everyone said that it was God. How many times have you seen anointed men do things that should not be done? 
We were in another sanctuary on the other side of that wall. And I remember a man named Mike whose finger was broken in two. It was hanging a left-hand turn, and it snapped into place during our service. Little Christopher Hall sitting back there had a wrong number of ribs on one side of his body. We have the x-rays before and after. God grew a rib out in him. Dee Dee sits right here in a pink hat, a 4.3 centimeter Tumor disappeared from her body. And her Jewish doctor wants to come to the church and find out how that happens. We could go on and on. The fire of God has fallen. Ahab saw this, but again, did not repent. In the 18th chapter, in the 44th and 45th verse, he saw Elijah say that it was going to rain. And it began to rain at Elijah's word. In the 20th chapter, the 19th through the 28th verses, an army of Aram is invading Israel. Ahab neither acts godly nor masculinely. There's no courageous nature in him. He's a pansy and a daffodil. But you know what God does? Because he loves Israel, he delivers them anyway. And in two cases... Sends word to Ahab from a prophet. Even though you're a worm, I'm going to deliver the people because I have mercy. Twice that happened. Did Ahab see some miracles? Yes, Ahab saw miracles and he saw mercy. By the way, in the 16th chapter, we should read verse 30. Let's get the summary from God's point of view of Ahab's life. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbel, the king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. Why would a man so blessed, a man who had seen so many miracles, crave such strange food? Is this not the question that the United States ought to be asking? Has there ever been a more prosperous nation in the history of modern history? Has there ever been a freer people? And yet we stand at the precipice of disaster while our preachers tell us peace and prosperity, literally. Nowhere in their theology do we have room for the judgment of God anymore. It's only candied-appled Christians, powder-puffed prophets, Ease us to sleep while the judgment of God falls on this nation. We've even raised up for ourselves doctrines that teach nothing bad could happen because God would never beat his bride. I would like to challenge your point of view historically. I'd like you to find any theologian anywhere that said such a stupid thing before the 1840s because it never existed. This is a modern phenomenon And it's a modern phenomenon for a church that has no spine. He did more evil, and yet he saw more miracles. It was prophesied to him in 1 Kings 21 and verse 19 that he had so offended God by stealing Naboth's vineyard that he would die in a place that dogs would lick up his blood. This is Ahab. Before we even get into the story, this is Ahab. 
saw miracles, blessed in every way, judgment pronounced on him, and I still want you to see what he's going to do in the midst of it. By the way, in the scene where Elijah stands on Mount Carmel, and he says, how long will you waver between two opinions? If God is God, then serve him. If Baal is God, serve him. And fire fell upon an altar. That's Kings 18. In that scene, Do you remember how many false prophets there were? There were a total of 850. 450, their God was named. 400, they were not named. But they were put to death. That was the chapter 18. Pick up with me in chapter 22. With all of that as history. Are you all okay? I could just tell you that these things are not God's best for you and send you on your way. But my observation is that doesn't do anything except crowd a parking lot. Doesn't crowd an altar for repentance. I don't see supernatural regeneration. I don't see an undying love for the lost going to the furthest corners of the globe. Instead, I see a selfish consumer mentality inside of the church. And it resembles a Six Flags theme park. Six Flags over Jesus. He'll make all your wildest dreams come true. This was not the salvation cry of the early church. But he will give you what you want. Here comes 1 Kings 22. Start with me in verse 1. For three years there was no war between Aram and Israel. But in the third year, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went down to see the king of Israel. Friends, I'd like to tell you, be careful the friends you keep. If you have to go down to see them, you need to ask yourself, when I get down there, where will I be? Many a naive Christian has gone down to see a friend and ended up in the same hole they had once hoped to pull their friend out of. I think you probably ought to stand on the high ground and invite them to come to you. Can you hear what I'm telling you? You fit in to get along. And you get along to fit in. But the message of the kingdom is clear. Repent and turn to the living God. It's never been nice or easy. It has always been a violent interruption into the lives of those around us. It's never been comfortable. This gospel today is so greasy. It's so sloppy. It's perverted the agape love of God into a love for sin. It's perverted the grace of God into a license for immorality. It used to be that men hid themselves on the ground for fear of the wrath of God. Have you ever read about the Great Awakening? It was an awakening to man's true condition. It was an awakening to the acknowledgement of the depravity of our hearts and asking God to change it. I can't remember the last time I heard someone preach like that. The king of Israel had said to his officials, Don't you know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us and yet we do nothing to retake it from the king of Aram? Understand, King Ahab is the king of Israel. He's in the north. King Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, the southern tribes. He's in the south. And Ramoth Gilead has been taken by the uh, king of Aram. Twice Ahab has beaten him. But here, he's asking for help. He can sense something's wrong. 
Jehoshaphat replied to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. But Jehoshaphat also said to the king of Israel, first seek the counsel of the Lord. What a critical mistake was just made. Have you ever seen your friend in trouble and said, hey, I'm with you no matter what? You can only be with your friend if God is with your friend. Are you with your friend while they walk away from God? Are you with your friend in support of their foolishness? Does your friendship with the man outweigh your friendship with God? See, this is what happens every time we're scared to offend. Our sensibility for the man is greater than our sensibility to God. Jehoshaphat says, I'm with you. I'm with you. We're we're as one man. But the person he's saying that with is not with God. And then Jehoshaphat comes to his senses and says, first seek the counsel of the Lord. Is prayer a footnote for you to satisfy the critic if your decision goes wrong? I did what I wanted to do, but, you know, I prayed about it, and God didn't tell me no. I know more people. There are actually pastors on TV now that say that their ministry schedules, husband and wife, has caused them to go in two different directions, so it's God's will that they divorce. Well, you got to throw away the entire book. What would you be preaching? That's right. They don't preach that book. They preach health, wealth, and success. God's will that they divorce. God said he hates to. It's like you have to tear Malachi out of your Bibles. Jehoshaphat says, Ahab, I'm with you, but I want you to seek God. Let's see how Ahab seeks God and see what we can glean from that. Verse uh, 6. So the king of Israel brought together the prophets. By the way, in Jeremiah's day, who wanted to kill him? The prophets and the priests. So the king of Israel brought together the prophets, about 400 men. These 400 had to replace the last 400 that Elijah killed. And asked them. Apparently, it's easy to find false prophets. True ones are rare. False ones everywhere. Dime a dozen. You can go to Walmart and get 400 on a shelf. I mean, we have not turned three chapters. And in the last 850 that were killed at Elijah's altar, we've already found 400 more. Shall I go to war against Ramoth Gilead or shall I refrain? Go, they answered, for the Lord will give it into the king's hands. He's inquiring of God after he's decided what he wants to do. So what do you think the false prophet tells him? You know, lest I be too hard on old Ahab. I one time passed a Chevy dealership and, uh, and I saw a white uh, extended cab Chevrolet, a half ton. It had leather bucket seats in it, Steve. It had, had a 350 horsepower uh, engine in it. It was nice. And I, I knew then that I wanted it. So I prayed. Do you catch the order there? I knew then that I wanted it, so I prayed. Lord, if when I come back down this road, it's still there, that will be a sign that you want me to have it. (laughs) Now, if God tells you to go witness to Muslims in Iraq, you need seven supernatural signs followed by Jesus in the incarnate telling you to go. And then if it's not on videotape, you deny it. But if if it's that you want to buy a car, well, then the fleece is, you know, if it happens to be there then I'll buy it. So I got the prophecy that I wanted. Oh, it must be God's will. 
And I bought the car. And three months later, I had to sell the car. Guys, we need to be careful what it is we want and what we lay at the feet of the Lord. Look at what happens to Ahab. The king of Israel answered Jehoshaphat. I'm sorry, Jehoshaphat's going to complain in verse 7. But Jehoshaphat asked, Is there not a prophet of the Lord here whom we can inquire of? Do you understand that Jehoshaphat watched 400 men come forward and prophesy? And he said, There's not one prophet of God here? Does that mean that those 400 didn't claim to be prophets of God? No, no. It means that when you're acquainted with the real thing, you can spot the imposter. Now, it doesn't surprise me that lost people all over the place think false prophets are real prophets. That doesn't surprise me at all. Seems like every little old lady that I met in the secular world all had their TV tuned to a certain channel on a Sunday morning because somebody was nice, you know. That doesn't mean that they're godly. doesn't mean that it's right. I'm not surprised when the lost are deceived. But the righteous? Surely we ought to know the difference between a counterfeit and the real thing. We're so scared to offend, so scared to upset. We don't want to seem hateful. Do you know that Jesus looked at the most religious men in world history and called their father the devil to their face? Have you ever read John 8? Those same men killed him in the name of God. Jesus said, if this is how they treat me and I'm your master, then how will they treat you? We've ignored all of those things. We've ignored Paul's admonition to Timothy. Anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And instead, what we've said is we'll be blessed, blessed, blessed. And they'll know by our jets and our watches and our suits that we're godly. By that standard, Tom Cruise is a saint. Mr. Unitooth himself. People are more offended by his teachings in Scientology than the fact that we give those kind of men millions of dollars to entertain us. Church, where are our standards? Jehoshaphat said, Is there not a prophet of the Lord here whom we can inquire of? Verse 8, the king of Israel answered Jehoshaphat, There is still one man through whom we can inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he never prophesies anything good about me, but always bad. He is Micaiah, son of Emi. Matthew and I were in a meeting and a guy slammed his hand down on the table, looked at me and said, I hate meeting with you. You always say the same things to me. When attacked, I usually take a minute to pray. I try not to respond right away. It's usually a good principle. Matthew beat me to it. He said, stop sinning. Meeting will go a whole lot better if you stop sinning. He brought in 400 false prophets when he knew there was a real prophet. Because he wanted them to prophesy what he wanted to hear. You say, why go through the charade? The same reason you know you're wrong, but you'll go call ten people to get them to agree with you. You want to feel better while you're doing what's wrong. We don't get to have it both ways, friends. If we know what we're doing is wrong, you should feel terrible about it. The whole world's social system is adjusting now so that nobody has to feel wrong about deviant behavior. You're supposed to feel wrong about it because it's wicked. 
Now, when somebody says that all of a sudden, but God loves them. Yes, God loves every individual enough to confront us with wickedness and invite us to change. In this congregation, we've seen people delivered from everything that someone can be delivered of. None of us were noble. But when Jesus Christ has set you free, you're free indeed. Suddenly, the political lie that you were born that way. Yeah, well, we were all born sinners. Suddenly, the political lie that it's just an alternative lifestyle choice. An alternative lifestyle. Alternative to what? Life. It kills you. The wages of sin are death. Guys, he got 400 prophets to come lie to him. And he knows there's one who won't lie to him, or at least he thinks. Dressed in their royal robes, the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones at the threshing floor by the entrance to the gate of Samaria, with all of the prophets prophesying before them. Now Zedekah, which means righteousness, by the way, son of Keniah, had made an iron horns and declared, This is what the Lord says, With these you will gore the Armenians until they are destroyed. They're not just prophesying you win. They've taken the time to make props. Sermon examples, you know. Isn't it funny? Nobody demonstrates the power of the kingdom anymore. We demonstrate the power of the LCD. We demonstrate the power of presentation. Guys, if you stripped everything out of this room and had us stand on concrete, I'm still confident that when we pray, sick people will get healed. And that is... Those are the marks of authentic ministry, not the quality of an LCD display or the number of people in a youth group. Verse 13. The messenger who had gone to summon Micaiah said to him, Look, as one man, the other prophets are predicting success for the king. Let your word agree with theirs and speak favorably. Can you hear this voice, friends? Why do you have to be such a spoiler? 400 of us already agree. We've already heard from God. Who are you to dissent? Well, there's a reason they didn't invite him to the party. There's a reason that it's only at the end that he's called for. You need to understand anybody that is a true preacher of righteousness is not going to be loved by everybody in the world. Jesus said, woe to you when all men speak well of you. Am I lying or did he say it? Come on, you're theologians and scholars in here. Did Jesus say it? Then if you need a special seat in the United Nations or an entourage to carry you around, you might not be doing something right. I've noticed that we like rock star preachers. And I don't mean literally rock and roll. I mean we like demagogues. We like to lift up somebody bigger than us. The gospel's always been advanced by ordinary men. We've always been disappointed by the popes we elect for ourselves, whether Catholic or Protestant, because they have a giant crash, and then everybody says the same thing. The church is full of hypocrites. No, it's full of ordinary, regular men who are struggling to receive the power of God and put down wickedness. The church gets what it wants. You want a hero? A temporary deliverer? That I'm sure God will raise up somebody to tickle your fancy. But what I want is righteousness. 
I want it with all of my heart. So they call for Micaiah in verse 14, under the condition that he be told, let his word agree with theirs. You can become a pariah, friends, an absolute albatross, simply by reading chapters of Romans aloud. When he arrived, the king asked Micaiah, shall we go out to war against Ramoth-Gilead, or shall I refrain? Ah, attack, be victorious, he answered, for the Lord will give it into your hand. Now you have to decide when you read this. Is Micaiah simply lying to him? Is Micaiah yielding to the pressure? Or is he practicing irony and sarcasm? I mean, in 1 Kings 18, 27, do you remember? Put that on the screen. 1 Kings 18, 27. Elijah is talking to the false prophets. They have somewhat of an antagonistic relationship. And at noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is God. Perhaps he's in deep thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. Elijah is taunting the false prophets about their God. In the Hebrew, he literally says, maybe your God's on the potty. I think Micaiah is looking at Ahab and saying, I already know what you want to hear and you do too. Sure, go attack, be victorious. God's already said that you're going to be put to death and dogs are going to lick up your blood. He's got no interest in this king. He knows the king doesn't want to repent. The king only wants to hear what the king wants to hear. Guys, do we want to repent? Do we want our lives right? Do we want it to get right? Or do we just want to hear what we want to hear? The king said to him, How many times must I make you swear to tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? You can hear he's frantic. Because something about what Micaiah said didn't set well with him. Then Micaiah answered, I saw all Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, These people have no master. Let each one go home in peace. Micaiah saw the end from the beginning because he was in touch with the living God. And Micaiah is telling him, the path you're on will lead to your death and a kingless people. You should let them go home now. Now, didn't he just get sworn to tell the truth? But it's not what the king wants. He goes to war anyway. What an interesting problem. What happens when we claim that we love biblical preaching, when we claim the Bible's the inerrant word of God, when we claim we love everything about it, and then we get mad when it says something we don't like? I did my father's funeral some years ago, and I used his Bible to do it. And next to this passage, he had written the most curious statement. My father had been a principal in a denominational private school and then a superintendent and that denominational private system. And the problem is, at 56 years old, he got baptized in God's Holy Spirit. And that denomination says it doesn't happen anymore. And he wrote the neatest thing in his Bible. I found it at his funeral. I won't say the name of... Yeah, I will. It was Baptist. He said, Baptist people are the most curious on the planet. They will fight you for the verbal, plenary inspiration of the word and then want to kill you when you tell them what it says. Now, he had been Baptist for 56 years. He was baptized at Dolphin Way Baptist Church in Mobile, Alabama and baptized in the Holy Ghost in his living room in the early 90s. Do you 
Love the Word of God unless it says that you need to do something different. Understand that the preaching of John the Baptist was offensive to Israel for one reason. They didn't think they needed to repent. They were fine with Gentiles repenting. They're fine with those people out there. But they didn't think they needed to repent. And so, who came first to Jesus? Whores, tax collectors, men of low reputation and low account because they knew they needed to repent. While we're looking at this, perhaps we could pick back up and say 18. The king of Israel said, Jehoshaphat, didn't I tell you that he never prophesies anything good to me but only bad? He's whining. He doesn't care about the truth. He cares about how the preaching makes him feel. Would you go to a doctor like that? Is there anybody in here that wants to go to a doctor that will make you feel good even if it compromises the truth? How about a car mechanic? What if the car mechanic's got great bedside manner, so to speak, but no ability to fix the car? Do you see how warped we are? We'll choose a church because it's close to our house. And because we like the way the preacher preaches. It either is convicting you of sin in your life and causing you to grow closer to the Lord or it's not. And when you can mistake our preachers for motivational speakers, they have nothing in common with the prophets of the Bible. Nothing. Nothing in common with Jesus. Jesus could not ever be mistaken for a motivational speaker. I challenge you to read the red words in your Bible and tell me, can you imagine them coming out of the mouths of this nation's most popular pastors and evangelists? It would be funny if it wasn't so sad. Didn't I tell you prophesize only bad things? Verse 19, this is enlightening and it's why I wanted you to go through all of this with me. Micaiah continued, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the host of heaven standing around him on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab into attacking Ramoth Gilead and going to his death there? Micaiah sees into the heavens. He's seeing a vision of what took place in the heavens. And God asked for a volunteer to mislead Ahab because it's what Ahab wanted. One suggested this and another that. Finally, a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. By what means, the Lord asked, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouths of all of his prophets. You will succeed in enticing him, said the Lord. Go and do it. You never find this in new believers' materials. They struggle with the idea that if somebody wants wickedness, God will let them have it. And yet it's not just in this isolated place. How many of you believe the Lord will return? Oh, man. How many different views are there on the Lord's return? Well, some this, some that. Right now, we're in the popular season that the Lord is going to snatch everybody away. There's even a movie coming out. Man, if Hollywood makes... (laughs) I'll let you discern that. Oh, my goodness. They can teach that it's a secret coming. 
They can teach that there'll be neat little piles of clothes and everybody will be scratching their heads looking around going, what happened? Of course, the Bible says he'll be revealed in blazing fire and that every eye will see him. Even as lightning is visible in the west from the east, every eye will see him. But again, we want people to tell us what we want to hear. And nobody here wants to suffer anything. Can I just tell you from personal experience, suffering has a way of purifying the soul. I'm not here to tell you to go hurt yourself. No Christian sadist. I'm simply saying that while you're trying to do something for God and it gets downright hard, you find out what is in you that you don't like. And you ask God to help get rid of it. It has a way of eliminating the superfluous. All of a sudden you're not as concerned about who said what when you're on your deathbed. You're concerned with getting it right. The harder something is, the more you need the Lord to do it. A lying spirit in their mouths. By the way, after they strike Micaiah in the face, look at verse 29. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went up to Ramoth Gilead. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I'll enter the battle in disguise. You wear your royal robes. You ever had friends like that? Prophesied that he's going to die and he doesn't believe it. I mean, uh, this guy's a liar. My 400 prophets are right. Somebody go hit him in the face. But by the way, I'm going to disguise myself just in case what he said is true. But Christians go to church every day and hear a word that they know is true. And they put on a disguise and go out there and act like God doesn't see it. They amen with the best of them. They say, oh, yes, 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 yes. And then when they go out there, they yield to the prevailing winds. I'm going to tell you, Jehoshaphat was in the wrong place. He was. He shouldn't be with this wicked king, but at least he refused to take off his royal robes. So the battle goes against them surprisingly, right? Jehoshaphat cries out to the Lord. You know what Ahab does? Hides. Hides in his disguise. And an arrow was shot at random. This chapter says the arrow came in between the plates of armor and struck Ahab and killed him. I don't think it was really at random. I want you to know there is no disguise in the world that will hide your true condition. The word of God is like an arrow that will find the joints in your armor. God's been calling the same thing since Genesis. He called out to Adam, where are you? Adam wasn't looking for God. God was looking for Adam. And Adam acknowledged, I was naked, so I hid. Oh, that we could be as brave as Adam. We're embarrassed before you, God. Who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the tree I told you not to? Mm-hmm. What did they do? What's the first thing? They covered themselves with fig leaves. Didn't fool God about their condition, though, did it? Fig leaf religion fools your neighbors. It doesn't fool God. In the 90s, there was a study. 75% of Christians, I'm sorry, 75% of the United States at that time claimed to be a Christian, but more than 50% had doubts about their neighbor. That's fig leaf religion. Everybody you meet's a Christian. Well, why are you a Christian? Well, I can quote these two verses. Why are you a Christian? Because I prayed a prayer at an altar. No evidence in my life, but I prayed the prayer. Why are you a Christian? I was baptized as an infant, or I ate Jesus at a communion table. Why are you a Christian? 
How about because I love righteousness? How about because I love the king of righteousness? I stop asking people, are you a Christian? Now I ask, when did you fall head over heels in love with Jesus? And when the nature of that question shocks people, I don't even have to hear their answer. So, Eric, that's very judgmental. The Bible is very judgmental. Read it sometime. Could we put Psalm 141, verses 4 and 5? I know that you're antsy. I know I've been preaching a long time. But I don't want to keenly put my finger upon the problem without offering you a solution. In Psalm 141, verse 4. Let not my heart be drawn to what is evil, to take part in wicked deeds with men who are evildoers. Let me not eat of their delicacies. Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil on my head. My head will not refuse it. Friends, the heart of God in a human being looks like this. Lord, it's in me to be drawn to things I shouldn't. And I don't want to be. Let me not be drawn to that nastiness. When the crowd's going wrong, I don't want to go with it. Lord, if I, if I do begin to go that way, appoint somebody to strike me in the face. Turn me around. Today, we don't want to strike in the face. We want to pat on the back while we do what is wrong. And so what is wrong is coming out of our noses. It's all around us. And should you get the slightest correction, we think it's the harshest of corrections because we have no appetite for it. More people leave churches because they're told, you might want to start trying to be a good parent now. When he's 17, he'll be able to whip you. More people leave churches when they're told, Yeah, I know that you say that little Johnny's just in with the wrong crowd, but it might be that Johnny is the wrong crowd. More people leave churches when they're told, I know that you say you had a salvation experience, but I don't see any fruit of it in your life. More people leave churches when they're told the most loving things as a strike in the face to try to get them to turn around. Jesus often had as many as 5,000 that followed him, but there was only a handful at the cross. Not everybody wants discipline. In 1 Kings 22, 8 was when the exchange occurred. In 1 Kings 22, 8, he says, Yeah, there is one man who will tell the truth, but I hate him. When we decide to exchange truth for something we like, then God will give us what we like, even if it's coming out of our noses. Are you following me so far? Could we put 2 Timothy 4 and verse 3 on the screen? While that's going on the screen, turn to 2 Thessalonians. We will wrap up our message here, lest I offend your butt clock. In 2 Timothy 4 and verse 3, for the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. I want to ask you, has that time come or not? Instead, to suit their own desires, 
They will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. There may be 400 men prophesying to you health, wealth, and success. And there might just be one, and you hate him because he never seems to have anything good to say. I ask all the time. I pray with my family. I talk to my friends. Lord, could I please just once give a cheerleader message? It's not like I'm not capable of it, Lord. I, I mean, could I just be funny and entertaining? You'd never go to a doctor who prescribed what you wanted instead of what you needed. But if you don't think that that propensity is in us, then why do they advertise prescription drugs that can only be given through a doctor on regular television? Because they know. They know despite the Hippocratic Oath, if you go in and you say, I want it, I want it, I want it, some doctors are just going to give it whether you need it or not. It's a business. And many churches have become no different. They're giving the people exactly what they want and the people love them for it. In 2 Thessalonians 2, starting in verse 9. Say there. I couldn't figure out why it didn't make sense. I was in Timothy. 2 Thessalonians 2, starting in verse 9. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, and every sort of evil that deceives those who are. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, what's that word? For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. Who sends the delusion? There is a day coming in the end times, and I believe that it is here now, when because people love wickedness, God will allow them to love their wickedness. He'll even allow it to come to power. And it will probably be in His name. When you hear the word antichrist, you usually think against Christ, and that's true, but it also means pseudo or replacement Christ. There is no wickedness like religious wickedness. That which claims to be for Jesus and is actually of the wrong spirit because it gives people a false sense of security. Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? I challenge you to read the second chapter of Thessalonians in its entirety and without a commentary. Ask yourself, if this was a letter written to me, would any of the end time views fit in this letter after you've read it? The only way to make the second chapter fit those end times views is to have read them, be thoroughly acquainted and bought into them before you ever read the actual word. He clearly says, The day of the Lord will not come until there's a rebellion. The book of Daniel is much the same way, but I don't want to teach eschatology. My issue here is where our hearts are. Proverbs 14 and Proverbs 16 both say there is a way that seems right to a man, and in the end it leads to... We need to be careful whether we're going to fight for our own way. We need to be very careful... It is so serious 
that Matthew 24, let's put that one on the screen. Matthew 24, verse 10. I want you to hear how serious it is and then we're going to close. At that time, just a couple of the bad people will turn away. What is many? If you got a hundred, what is many? Is it two? Is it three? This word implies majority in the original language. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. We have an obligation, friends. It's getting dark around us. And people love wickedness. And it is wearing us down sometimes to the point that we see these articles and we don't pull out our beards, tear our clothes, and fall on the ground and say, I'm ashamed. We just go, oh, well, you know, everybody believes differently. Your great-grandparents may not have been particularly religious people, but they would have revolted in the streets over this. The increase of wickedness is going to cause an apostasy. But when people are deceived, they don't know they're deceived. Has anybody grown up with an alcoholic? I'm not drunk. I'm not drunk. I'm not drunk. Really? Because you got like 90 DWIs and your car looks like it was fitted for war. But you're not drunk. If we were good at knowing our true state, God would not have appointed people in the Bible called seers and prophets. But we hate people that see us more clearly than we see ourselves, don't we? Leviticus 23, 29 says, On the day of atonement, you have to deny yourself. And if you don't deny yourself, there'll be no atonement. Jesus said the same thing in Matthew 16, 24. If any man would come after me, Any man, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. You need to understand, part of Christianity is saying, yes, I feel drawn to those things, but no, in the name of Jesus, I deny them and I will walk this way. Lord, will you empower me? I love truth more than I love that. I worked in a place with a hundred people in a little cube farm. An IT department on the other side of the wall. They told us every week, if you serve porn, you will be fired. Every week, they fired people. How can you know that you're going to be fired? Because wickedness has an appetite, and it'll grow and take you to places you never wanted to go. Friends, you can think you just stuck your toe in and nobody knows, and before you know it, you are drowning in it. God Himself is watching your heart to see what you desire. And you say, nobody knows my heart. God knows my heart. He may know it better than you do. He told you how to evaluate your heart. It's the way the fruit looks on the tree. Stop telling me what you believe and look and see what you did this last month. Come on, wives. Your husband says he loves you. But if he is never there, If he's never affectionate, if he's never kind, if he's always with the guys, always shooting deer, always watching football and drinking beer, you know that he doesn't love you and you don't put up with it. Do you think Jesus is not as smart as you are? If you love him, the expression of your life will show that. I'd like to offer this 
Matthew, you can come this way. Sometimes people are scared of preaching about judgment. And they're scared of preaching about judgment because they don't want to sound harsh. Is it fair to say that men usually live at least 70 years now? Some of you in here are well over that. If you lived 70 years, you would have 25,550 days to repent and turn towards God. That'd be 25,550 opportunities to turn towards God. Could you put Matthew 25, 41 on the screen? We need to see it. 25,540 opportunities. And that one day that you woke up and you are facing the king of kings, he's going to say to some, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. But understand something, it was prepared for the devil, prepared for his angels. You were given 25,550 days to repent so that you didn't have to go there. And we tell him no because we desire other food. Tell me, is that not grace on his part? It's grace. We're swimming in it. Grace is actually part of the problem. When somebody hit click on a sin that the Bible says will kill, if it killed even one in the room that moment, nobody else would click. It's the departure between the, uh, the distance between the penalty and the sin that is killing us. We're swimming in grace so that we don't see the effects of those headlines until they're already upon us. But then trusting God is when you know the effect before you can see it, isn't it? Isn't faith the substance of things hoped for? The evidence of things unseen? Isn't trusting God, believing what He says, even if you don't see the consequence now? How long can we say that we stand in the faith while doing things we know are deserving of death? Church, I'm going to tell you why I'm preaching so hard about this. I said, Pastor, don't you know most of us are saved? I hope so. I hope so. I hope His Spirit is inside you bearing witness that you're His child. But that is the only way that you know He's saved is when He says you're saved. Some pastor telling you you're saved when you're eight doesn't make you saved. Getting baptized doesn't make you saved. Eating the communion doesn't make you saved. You know how you know when you're saved? When you were convicted as a sinner and you knew you were worthy of death and he relieved that conviction and testifies, you are my son. Any other reading of the book of Romans is a bastardization of the truth. And shame on them for doing it. They're perverting the gospel of God. I want you to walk out of here with that kind of affirmation in your heart. I want you to walk out of here with that kind of clear call. I want you to... Preacher's tool. I want you to know that heaven's been deposited inside of you. If you want righteousness, the Sermon on the Mount says those who hunger and thirst for it will be filled. Not those who pray to prayer. Not those who practice infant baptism or communion. Those who hunger for it. What do you hunger for? Would you be embarrassed if we saw your cable bill? 
You invest more in the cable bill than the kingdom of God? What do you hunger for? This is a time for us to adjust our hearts. No, the world around you is not going to be the standard you're judged by. The wickeder they get, the more the church can say, at least I'm not like them, but they are not the standard Jesus Christ is. Could we stand to our feet?